Like most of you, I suspect, when I read the Bible, I want to do it in a prayerful way, hoping that God will open my mind and heart to ponder the message that the Holy Spirit has breathed into the words I am reading. I'm someone who believes in the divine inspiration of all the books found in the Bible. Well, over 40 years ago, my belief in the Bible and every book of the Bible led me to pursue a college major in Old Testament literature. Of course, I studied the New Testament as well, but I was certain that my understanding of the New Testament could only be enriched by a deeper understanding of the Old Testament. It's a great responsibility, but also an immense privilege to be part of your own quest to grow in your understanding and appreciation of the Old Testament. There was a fairly lengthy time in the first half of the last century when many scholars believed the New Testament owed very little to the Old Testament. They thought that Christianity owed more to the influence of Greek philosophers than it did to ancient Judaism with its deep commitment to Mosaic law and the message of the prophets. But the attempt to trace everything in the New Testament back to Greek philosophy ended in failure. Today, even Jewish scholars have developed a profound interest in the New Testament because by reading between the lines of the Gospels and Paul's and others' New Testament letters, they are given profound insights into the beliefs and practices of Judaism during the first century after Christ's birth. And Christian scholars have paid close attention to what the Jewish scholars are saying about the New Testament because the better we understand the Judaism of Christ's time, the better we understand Jesus, Paul, and the apostles. Learning the historical context in which any work of sacred scripture was written is essential for understanding what God was saying to his people then. This means we also need to learn what kind of literature the people of the time were familiar with and how different kinds of literature helped shape the message being conveyed. Reading the Bible without careful attention to the historical and literary context of the particular book we are reading can lead to misunderstanding the message in the text. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than when we, 21st century citizens of a highly technological, secular-oriented, scientifically grounded world, try to discern a timeless, inspired message in the Genesis creation accounts. We enter Genesis with pressure from all sides to either accept or reject it as a detailed account of how the world, indeed the entire universe, came into being. We are told by fundamentalists that God literally tells us the step-by-step -step method by which God created the world. We are also told by many scientifically astute people that what we read in Genesis is the stuff of a fairy tale. Six days to create the world, and that the first day and night had a bright day and a dark night before there was ever a sun or any stars or the moon? I mean, come on, who can believe that stuff? Whoa there, let's first try to understand the historical context of the people of the time Genesis 1 was written. When the Jewish people were in exile in Babylon, they heard a creation story over and over again that said Earth and its humans were created out of the remains of a defeated enemy of the sky god and his cohorts. Humans were created to be slaves to the victorious gods, feeding these deities and giving them rest. If we read Genesis 1 with our questions that arise from science, we are not letting the Bible tell its true story. Its truth is timeless, but only when we receive it 
the sensitivity for the questions it sought to answer in its original circumstances. Genesis 1 never attempted to tell anyone how long it took to create the world. Genesis 1 sought to answer the important questions the Jewish people of the day were asking, such as, what is our relationship to the Creator? Are we as slaves? Do we exist in order to placate an angry God? Why do our religious leaders insist on us resting on the seventh day? The religious leaders of the exiled Jews wanted to set the record straight. The God of Israel created the world and placed the humans in it because God cared for them. They were created in God's own image and all that God created was good. The six days of creation are a poetic device that tells the people that their day-to-day -day lives have the pattern they do because God created the world to be a fruitful home for all creation. In Genesis 3, the people learn why their day-to-day -day lives are also oftentimes of a struggle just to survive. For the first three days of creation, God began by preparing a place for every one of its creatures that would come later. On the next three days, God placed the creatures in the places prepared for them on the first three days. God made the world to bear fruit so that the humans and all moving creatures would be fed. There was no concern that their creator needed to be fed by his creatures. Finally, on the seventh day, God not only rested, but unlike the Babylonian gods, the creator of all invited the man and the woman into his rest. The message of Genesis 1 for us today is to tell us something very important about our God who created the world because God is exceedingly generous and hospitable. We are loved by God because the Creator sees in us God's own reflection. Reading the Bible with understanding is a learning process. You are here because you have entered that process. I hope learning how to read the Bible with understanding is something that will bring you great joy for the rest of your life. It is a joy that has never left mine. Long after my college days, I met the late Father Lawrence Boat, who wrote one of the most popular introductions to the Old Testament of his day. In three days of talks at a Little Rock Scripture Study Bible Institute, he opened up the Pentateuch for us in a way that gave me a completely new appreciation. Father Boat insisted on the timelessness of the Pentateuch. First, though, he reminded us of the foundational understandings of God for both Jews and Christians that come to us from the Pentateuch. The following are just a few, and it's not meant to be an exhaustive list. One, there's only one God, and this one God has chosen to be our God. Two, the world and the entire universe are the creation of God, and God has declared that the world is not only good, but very good. Three, we, male and female, are made in the image of God. Four, having been made in God's image, we find our greatest fulfillment in the love and worship of God. Five, from the very beginning, human beings have succumbed to temptation, and we are all in need of redemption. Six, in order to redeem us, God has chosen us to be his people and calls us to holiness by teaching us how to be just and righteous.
7, God is a compassionate God who hears the cry of the poor. And 8, God is active in history, liberating slaves and punishing tyrants. The Pentateuch is referred to as Torah by Jews, and Torah means not just law, but instruction. For Jews throughout history, the Torah is the source for their core understanding of their relationship with God and what, who, God has called them to be in the world. It is in the first book of Torah, Genesis, that Abraham and Sarah answer the call of God and believe God's promise that their descendants will outnumber the stars of heaven. And these countless descendants will be given the land of Canaan, which Abraham and Sarah can only sojourn in as visitors. Abraham and Sarah will die believing in the one who made the promises, but the promises will not be fulfilled until long after they die. Let me provide a little background for how modern scholars have come to view the Pentateuch. Early last century, scholars developed a theory to explain some of the oddities in language and apparent contradictions found within the Pentateuch. Up until this time, the most popular belief was simply that Moses wrote most of the Pentateuch himself, a belief still widely held among fundamentalists. But there are too many oddities, too many quirks and contradictions in the Pentateuch to give credence to the claim that Moses was the sole author rather than the revered inspiration behind its eventual formulation as we understand today. These problems were especially apparent in Genesis. For instance, in Genesis 1, God is referred to in Hebrew as Elohim, a more or less generic name for God. But in Genesis 2, God is referred to as Yahweh, a name that Exodus 3 says was unknown until it was revealed to Moses. Also, when Noah is told to build an ark, he is told by God in Genesis 6 to bring aboard the ark a male and female, two of every kind of animal, exactly two of each species. But in Genesis 7, he is told to bring seven pairs of every clean animal, a category that isn't actually revealed until the time of Moses, as found in the food laws of Leviticus. There are many other curiosities that led to an attempted explanation that is known as the JEDP source hypothesis. In short, this hypothesis looked at all the Old Testament as coming from four different schools of editors. The oldest school was J, which was thought to be a school of editors living in Judah, who insisted on using Yahweh, once translated as Jehovah in German and English, and thus the J. Biblical sources from the northern tribes were thought to prefer Elohim as a name for God, thus the E source. The D source referred to the editors of Deuteronomy and the historical books that blamed the destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple on the Davidic kings who failed to enforce the pure monotheism found in the book of Deuteronomy. Finally, there were the priests, the P school, who survived the destruction of the temple in the sixth century BC and who edited the Old Testament and the Pentateuch in particular to preserve their understanding of how God intended to be worshiped. Now the JEDP hypothesis still has a lot of adherence and it does help explain some things in the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament. But what more and more modern scholars are saying is that the editorial process behind the Old Testament as we have it was probably way too complicated 
to fit into such a nice compact theory. There is, however, one central focus that today seems to govern much of the interpretation of the Pentateuch and the Old Testament as a whole. In 586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, raised its temple, and deported all the skilled laborers and leading citizens. This unparalleled crisis threatened the core religious beliefs of Israel. There was no longer a temple in which to worship. There was no Davidic king to govern in the name of God. And most devastating of all, the land promised to Abraham and his descendants forever was no longer their homeland. How could their religious identity be maintained after all the signs of their covenant with God had been taken from them? This tragedy is what led the religious teachers, priests, and scholars of Judah to preserve all its traditions and sacred literature into the corpus we call the Old Testament. But as they compiled their literary, legal, and religious heritage, they shaped it from beginning to end in light of the tragedy of the exile. What did it mean to have a covenant with God, to have an identity as God's chosen people, when every tangible aspect of your relationship with God had been stripped away, ground into rubble, and burnt to the ground? What happened to the divine promises made to Abraham? The answer is found in the way the Pentateuch, Torah, was put into its completed form and preserved for us in our Bibles. This is what Father Boat helped me to see. Although he was not the first to see it, it was something he made sure everyone he taught came to understand, and it gave me an entirely new appreciation for the Pentateuch. The final shape of the Pentateuch was fashioned by editors who survived the exile in order to preserve the faith of God's people in spite of the exile. What they did was this. They made sure that the people of Judah anchored their faith in God in and through the Torah, and they made sure that the Torah would teach God's people how to worship and serve God in whatever place or circumstance they found themselves in. It wouldn't matter whether they were in exile or in Jerusalem, whether they had a temple or not. There is an excitement, a great anticipation breathing beneath the texts in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Exodus, God's moral and religious instruction is given to the people and they are told how to build a traveling tabernacle in which the true worship of God is to take place. In Leviticus, the people learn how their daily lives are to distinguish them from all other peoples of the earth, how they live, farm, dress, and eat will identify them to the rest of the world as a peculiar people, a people who are different because they are God's people. In Numbers, the people are identified by tribe, by their descent from the patriarchal children of Jacob, whom God had renamed Israel. The people are gathered together and assembled by tribe and put in readiness to march in military precision into the Promised Land, but they do not enter yet. In Deuteronomy, all Israel is assembled together to hear Moses retell the story of their covenant with God and how they are living under both a blessing and a curse that will be pronounced over them as they enter the Promised Land. Blessed are they if they faithfully keep every word of the covenant, but if they ignore it, if they worship foreign gods and fail to care for their orphans and widows, 
their poor and the aliens in their midst, they will encounter a curse. This horrible curse seems to precisely describe their future destruction at the hands of the Assyrians in the northern tribes and by the Babylonians in Judah in the south. But in no book of the Pentateuch do the Israelites enter the land which will be called Israel. And what this means is that for all the horror of the unbearable curse found in Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch ends on an unspoken note of promise to every Jew who has ever lived since the time of the exile. Indeed, we know what the editors of the Pentateuch could not have known, that the first exile of the Jews, the Babylonian exile, was nothing in comparison to the exile of the Jews that followed the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and, and the Second Temple in A.D. 70. And yet the genius, the inspiration of those editors is so evident in light of that second greater exile. The way they shaped the Pentateuch gave Judaism its identity and hope for every age and every time. To this very day, Jewish people read the Torah as a people ready to enter into God's promises, regardless of the circumstances or places in which they live. Whatever tragedy lies in their past, the Torah is to be read as though they are a people about to inherit the promises, not as a people from whom the promises have been stripped. The Torah always points to the future always promises God's fidelity to the people of God and to the divine promises. Whether in exile or not, whether they have a temple or not, whether they have a Davidic king or not, the Torah prepares God's people to enter the promise. As a people of the Torah, they are a people readied and prepared for what lies ahead of them, not what lies in the past. Whether it was slavery in Egypt, exile in Babylon, or in the present in an apartment in Brooklyn, London, Paris, or Moscow, when they celebrate their new year anywhere in the world, they raise a toast and shout, Bashana Haba'ah Bayerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. And we as Christians also read the Pentateuch as an invitation to enter God's promises, a promise first made to Abraham, but brought to fulfillment in the one we call the Messiah the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth.